0: Hey everyone, David Kern here. Before we get to this week's episode, I just want to tell you about the Circe Institute Atrium program. It's a one-year program that explores the foundations of Christian classical education with online classes and discussions. The Atrium now features five different courses, and participants can choose any one course or sign up for multiple courses. These courses include our very own Heidi White, our very own here on The Close Reads, Talking about classical pedagogy, and then we've got Andrew Kern talking about classical rhetoric, Matthew Bianco talking about Plato's Republic, and then from West Callahan you can choose either the Divine Comedy or the Iliad. So there are great options for anybody who wants to dig into any of these subjects. If you'd like to learn more, head over to CirceInstitute.com/atrium. Again, that's CirceInstitute.com/atrium. And once again, those courses are Heidi Weiden on classical pedagogy, Andrew Kern on classical rhetoric, Matthew Bianco on Plato's Republic, or West Callahan on the Divine Comedy or the Iliad. One more time, that link is searcyinstitute.com slash atrium. And with that, let's get to this week's conversation. Hello, I'm David Kern.
2: I'm Heidi White.
0: And I'm Tim McIntosh. And you were listening to close read the podcast for the incurable reader on which Tim Macintosh makes faces while you're trying to talk I wish you could and see also this. on which it was a nostril flare. I would describe it as it is exactly and, what it was. <laughs> and this is also a podcast besides a podcast that Tim Macintosh makes nostril flares at his friends. It is also a podcast on which Tim, his nostril flares and his friends all talk about Zora and Neil Hurston's their eyes are watching God well, in then. particular this week the nostril flares and those three friends will be discussing the final three chapters of their eyes. We're watching God. We've come to the end. Good job. Really good. It was more of just like stiff arming a distraction so much. That was a good
1: description. Stiff arming a distraction.
0: (laughs) It's, um, you know, sometimes it's like being a parent hosting this podcast. I'm just gonna, just gonna throw that out there. I had my five-year-old here at the bookstore with me today and, There were moments when it felt a lot like hosting a podcast in which Tim's being there. It
1: felt a lot like Tim's nostrils.
0: (laughs) Tim, other other than the unusual urge to nostril flare, how are you doing?
1: I'm doing really well. I am nearing the end of a huge I'm nearing the the peak of a huge mountain at work. And I'm kind of, I think I'm on the backside of that peak, which makes me really happy.
0: You're on the downside.
1: Because I'm on the downside, which makes me on the upside, which puts me, my spirits on the upside.
0: So you're on the literal downslope in this metaphor, which puts you on the metaphorical upslope of your emotional life. Mm -hmm. Exactly. That was really complex.
2: You yeah, complex. Like, yeah.
1: Right. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Heidi, how are you?
2: I'm doing fine. I'm having a great time already. I think this is going to be a good, a good episode. Nostril <laughs> flares, uh, downside. Mixed upside, metaphors, paradoxes.
0: <laughs> yeah, exactly. All right. So we're here to discuss. There, as are watching God, uh, um it being the last episode in which we are going to discuss. Like these are the last chapters. So then next week, that means we're going to do a Q and A. So. If you were listening and you would like to get your questions in, you can submit those questions via a couple of uh, forms of media. On the one hand, you can email me that is david at goldberrybooks.com. Or, of course, you can always post those on the Facebook page. Uh, we'll have the thread there. Heidi, would you like to be in charge of starting that thread on the Facebook page?
2: I love being in charge of things.
0: Mm-hmm. Power vacuum. <laughs>
2: Power vacuum. I'll <laughs> Power step vacuum. right in. I'll post that Q and A thread.
0: All right, right on. Extra. Thank post you. It. I'll post Thank it. Thank you. Hard. <laughs> All right, perfect. Well, okay. So you can post your questions there, and we'll address as many questions as we can next week. After that, of course, we are going to be diving into Walter Wangerin's um, "The Book of the Dun Cow." That's our next book. So, we'll, we'll send out an email um and then post on the facebook page as well. The schedule for that. And we'll get that up before the Q&A. So in the next week you'll hear you'll see that schedule get posted. I will try to get that up on Friday, August 27th, which is the same day that you'll hear hearing this episode. Before we get into the conversation, I also need to apologize because there was a mix up between Logan and I and we didn't get the episode up on time even though we thought we'd got the episode up on time. And so I want to apologize that you didn't get last week's episode when you were expecting to. And, you know, that's it. I'm sorry. Every now and then makes up happen, but you know, I'm sure you had errands to run or chores to do, and we weren't alongside you doing that. And it's a great, it's a great thing to suffer through. So I apologize for that. Sorry, was that too sarcastic?
2: (laughs) No, Um, I, I thought you nailed that. Yeah. yeah well anyway uh, yeah,
0: yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no i'm genuinely sorry i'm genuinely sorry i just kind of it just kind of you know went off it rolls went off, off the tongue yeah i just mm-hmm. went off track there okay let's talk about their eyes for watching god <clears throat> um a lot more happens in these two chapters than than i was expecting and in a way more happens in these two chapters than happens in the rest of the book Cause the rest of the book is kind of this survey of her life. And then this book in these two, cha- three chapters, I guess we mainly get, we get this emphasis on a very small part of her life. Um, so a lot happens. Tea cake dies. There's a hurricane. Uh, there's a rabid dog and he, then he, he bites tea cake and that is part of how tea cake dies. So there's a lot of, a lot that happens where do we want to start? Like I was thinking about it and I was like trying to come up with a good starting question. And I was kind of at a loss because in some ways this section is very different than the first 17 chapters of this book. It feels almost like a different, a different book in some ways. Tim, do you agree with that? That it feels different than the first part?
1: Okay. Yeah. And I would add it. It seems like at the beginning of the book, we're going to have a very interior resolution. No, I'm not saying mm. that the whole book is interior, but it's a very interior resolution is what, we're, is what I was expecting, I think, because of the way that the book was set up. And there is mm. a, a bit of an interior resolution to the book, but so much of these final three chapters were about external action. Um, a hurricane, a things that happen to the them. Yeah, things that happen yeah. to them. The, um, yeah, getting bit by a rabid dog. The death of tea cake. The trial, and then we kind of go back to interiority. But leading up to that is a whole lot of external action. I thought, and it's funny because I thought that the unco- the oncoming hurricane was kind of riveting. It's like, I think she did a really great job of setting up that we know that a hurricane is coming. You know, like we know that the native Americans have signaled correctly by getting out of town. Um, and we're worried about the community that's in the muck and they're kind of looking the other way. And I, you know, like I felt my pulse increasing. I was really like, I was like time to get, you were tuned into the drama. Get out. Yeah. 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 And I thought that was a real strength of the book. Um, But I, I, I was a little bit surprised and maybe even a little bit confused that Janie's kind of like interior um, unrest was so prominent at the beginning of the book and just not, it didn't feel like the resolution focused on her interiority. It was there. The last couple of pages. I mean, certainly we address it, but mm-hmm. yeah, I, I was surprised by that.
0: Heidi, do you? Were you? Did you feel that too? Like there's, there's this idea of like the interior, interiority kind of uh, being left at the wayside as the novel concluded. Like you didn't. Tim said he didn't feel like it resolves. I think I agree with that. Like we were given this sort of sense of what the book was and what was where the drama was and what we were supposed to feel about it. And then when she kind of leaves Janie's inner life, she, she then doesn't come back and resolve some of those questions that got asked because, but she does give us this big, like almost like a dramatic set piece, but at the cost of that interiority.
2: Um, I'm torn on that. I think I disagree. I think... It's more complex and a little more nuanced than that. I I think that Zora Neale Hurston's entire point, if there is a moral of the story, which it's not a morality tale, is that happiness is an internal experience. And it is directly connected to the development of a voice and a control over that voice. Um, I think that's what happens to Janie. I, that's her entire journey of the book. I f- think I did feel that what you're describing until, until the final shift in the last couple of pages, when it turns out that it's been, this entire novel has been, when we think it's been pulling out of Janie's voice, it's been her voice all along because we rediscover on the last couple of pages that she is telling the story. All of this is a narration that she's been telling to Phoebe. Mm -hmm. And so in, when we think her voice is disappearing, it's actually not the entire thing is her voice and that's how the novel ends. So, Like I said, I think it's a little bit more complex than her interiority disappearing as much as it is a, she is, this is a, a action packed series of events and she's dictating that action. And then at the, and then we're reminded that the whole thing was her voice all along. You know, that's
1: what I would call a rock solid point. And (laughs) I totally glossed that, um, And it's not like I forgot that she was telling the story, but well, no, I guess I did forget she was telling the story, even though we kind of go back, we go back to that at the end. She's with Phoebe and the kind of like storyteller voice and her own voice are united again. That's a really good point, Heidi, that I just didn't even, I didn't even think about because we've said over and over in this book um, that the goal... That it seems like her kind of like discovering the ability to speak, to speak for herself, to be who she is, is central to this, to the plot. And to your point, what do you know? She's been doing it the whole time.
2: Right. Well, and I think even, even with that, there's some complexity and some question marks because- there's many points of the novel that shift perspective that there's things happening that she in telling Phoebe, she's either speculating on or she couldn't right. possibly know. Right? right. Like what tea cake was thinking when mm-hmm. he was thirsty, things like that. And so and we also, right. So well, we also it,
0: have the narrator that starts before she ever starts telling the story and then comes after she's ever telling the story.
2: Right. So I think that there's, there's a lot of complexity around the question of voice and voicelessness and the use of language that is structural and stylistic and also thematic that, and and I think the novel ends with some of those threads unresolved. And I I think that strengthens the novel, a novel that's about voice and voicelessness and the ambiguity of voice and the development of voice uh, and the ownership of voice leaves some questions about voice unanswered. I think, that's, I, I think that's a strength, but I can also see it as a frustration.
0: So you, f- you feel then like the questions that, her, that are brought up by the focus on her inner life are resolved at the end.
2: Um, I and think, I'm
0: not even saying right. that when, when we, I think when Tim and I say mm-hmm. it feels like it's not resolved, we're not necessarily saying that makes it, like that's a criticism. So much as it's just it becomes a different kind of book,
2: right? I do think that that's true. I I think that's fair is a better way of saying it. I think it's fair. I think that if you if you think about yourself telling a story. Most of the time when we're telling an action-packed part of the story, we're not stopping to describe our feelings in the midst of a trauma, right? We're telling this what happened. We're talking about running away from the storm. So I think it, it felt true to me. It felt like the way that a person would tell a story And I didn't necessarily miss that interiority piece. I think she, I think there's parts of this last section, those last three chapters that feel a little rushed, particularly the trial. That's the part that felt like, wait, what's happening right now? Like, um, Yeah. That just felt (laughs) rushed. But she also tells us that the trial was rushed. She tells us right away, the trial was, it, it happened fast and they did it that way on purpose. And so it, kind of makes sense that the description of it would also be rushed. And so I, I think that there's, like I said, I think there's a lot of complexity and nuance and intentional choices on the part of Zora Neale Hurston that could either, we could either argue it works or doesn't work, but it is intentional.
0: We should. So when we talk about the point of view, um, I want to, there's one question I do want to make sure we cover and I'm just going to say what it is now, but then I want to go back to the point of view. We talked a lot about whether she is gaining autonomy. Hmm as an individual. And she is, you know, there are these generations of women, particularly these African-American women who have had these different experiences and the, each person's, each of each woman's previous experience then feeds into the generation that comes after her. And the, and then the question becomes the degree to which that she actually achieves any kind of autonomy in her life as she goes through these three different husbands. And then in the end is telling her own, you know, trying to tell her own story. So I want to come back to that. So I just want to put that out there because I feel like we do need to discuss whether she not, I'm not even talking about like, did Hurston accomplish something here so much as does Janie within this story gain autonomy? Do we think that's what Hurston is suggesting? Not did she do a good job, but is that what she's suggesting? But, when, but before we do, I want to continue on this point of view because you're talking about the different layers. So I'm going to see if I can get at what you're saying here, kind of in a, by way of, the summary of what I'm understanding and see if I'm getting it right. Is that cool? (laughs) Okay. So, um, okay. Let me think. We've got, I've large, should I go, should I go bigger picture to smaller picture or smaller to larger? (laughs) Big to (laughs) small points of view. Okay. So big to small, we've got, we've got the, the storyteller who is kind of the overarching point of view and has like a more omniscient sense of things and is talking before and after Janie starts telling her story to Phoebe. So we've got that. And then within that, we have, within the book, we also have Janie telling her story to Phoebe and those points, perspectives. Within that, we also have the particular points of view of characters like Tea Cake or Jody or whoever, that people who she would not have known been able, you know she couldn't have possibly known that, and yet the novel gives us those points of view there, Is there any other layers here because we 've got, so got the big one, Janie telling her story, the characters within the story, and they all have they all normally would have varying degrees of omniscience and perspective and points of view and all that but that are you saying that the complication comes that where the varying degrees of omniscience in those characters is sort of muddied a little bit. And that's what makes the complications.
2: Yeah. I think that's certainly true.
0: Yeah. I mean, are there more points of view that you're talking about here besides those three, no, those three I think, levels yeah, of point? There's of view?
2: things that Janie talks about that she couldn't know unless she was told that she was so, so yes.
0: So then why do we assume that's Janie though? Just because within, because like it, the narrator seems to I read that as the narrator just kind of stepping in and talking f- about stuff about stuff that Janie was telling.
2: Right. Well, we can't assume it's Janie, to your point. I think that's right. However, on page 191, um, it, it's not told in first person. So we know it's not just Janie, t- Janie's story. Mm-hmm. Um, but on page 191, we have an ending and a page and a in a break in the middle of the page which we don't have a lot of those in the novel right so it's intentional it's it's structurally significant um so she noticed their final final paragraph of the narrative that proper is or excuse me the final sentence of the narrative proper is And now that she was home she meant to plant them for a remembrance and then there's a break and then Janie stirred her strong feet in the pan of water. The tiredness was gone. So she dried them off the towel. Now that's how everything was Phoebe. Just like I told you. Mm -hmm. Right. So we're left then the implication, although we're not told it's implied is that, that what we have in preceding this is Janie's point of view. Janie has told this story. However, there's things within this, the narrative that we couldn't, she couldn't possibly know. And so, like I said, that just makes it a little more complicated. Is it a flaw? I don't know. Is it intentional? I think so. I think. And and there's a name for it in the in the um uh what do they call it? Free indirect in the in Disc- the essay, discourse. free indirect discourse, which that did make me chuckle a little bit because you know, like novelists write novels and they make choices. And then later, you know, literary theorists come and put names on things that are just like completely made up. Right. Like just constructs. You've
0: seen um, some, of those names, here, uh... some of those theorists were novelists themselves, <laughs> exactly. though, to be fair.
2: No, of course, that's true. But it is funny to me. And that's my maybe my I, <laughs> I don't like the the academicizing of uh, not, and that we try to avoid that on the show making things like here's a name for this. And here, reader. Like, let me, let me instruct you on how to read this novel. Like the point that we try to make the three of us is anybody can read a novel. You don't need to know the names of these things just read right. and enjoy the novel. Right. And think right. about it. Like, But if you want so, another
0: name, yes, here's what people call there it. <laughs>
2: is, yes. But I mean, that it's highlighted as a stylistic, intentional choice, this free indirect discourse that we're describing and talking about right now.
1: Tim, what were you going to say? I was going to make a joke about Polonius describing the different modes of drama that the players can play in the middle of, of Hamlet. Hamlet. Dramatical, historical, historical, comical, pastoral. You know, he goes on and it's a really laughable scene because he demonstrates, he's, he's out to demonstrate how smart he is. And the result is he just ends up looking like a buffoon. I think mean, he's just, I was kind of... Mm-hmm. Let it be a lesson to you when you get... Two,
0: when you try to prove how smart you are, you're going to get stabbed. Yeah, right. You're going to
2: get stabbed right. while
0: hiding behind a tapestry. And you
2: deserve it. Because just don't <laughs> take a story and make it abstract. It's just enjoy it.
0: <laughs> um, <laughs> Pol- <laughs> Keep talking about Polonius for a while, couldn't we? Um, Poor Polonius. So one question, I, I brought this question up about uh, whether she has ends up getting... You know, she does end up getting some agency. Do you think that that's sort of what the implication is of this form? That because it gives, it assigns to Janie a degree of omniscience. Which you could also just say is she's taking some liberties as a storyteller, one of those two things. It has to be one of those two. Either she has, whoever's telling that part of the story is omniscient about what happened in Tea Cake's head, for example, and when she wasn't on the stage, if you will, or she has to be making some, taking some liberties and telling the story, just kind of telling her version of the story. Is, is Hurston's choice in giving that to Janie? Kind of meant to represent a degree of agency achieved by her. You're 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 muted, but you're
1: nodding. You think so,
2: Heidi? Well, I I just said that's a good question, and I I don't know, but I I think that it is. Um, I I think it is clear by the end of the novel that Janie is. Um, not only has she. Discovered a voice, but she demonstrates a remarkable amount of control over how she utilizes her voice, um, and I think some wisdom in Go when on. to speak and when to be silent. You mean um, as a
0: storyteller or as a character in the story? No, I mean
2: as a character in the story, as a as a human agent. I think she has successfully navigated object to agent as a member of one of the most oppressed groups in America. And I think that's, I, um, I really, I I think that is the. An admirable journey. I think that's the point. Yeah. And I think that's the point of the novel. I think that's why so many female black American authors and why so many women really like this story, why it remains a class. Like it is, it is a story of a woman Under extraordinary circumstances, who finds her voice, but remains also very complex. It's not a simple story. There's a lot of nuance in this story. There's a lot of opportunity to condemn and judge her that Zora Neale Hurston leaves us. Um, Mm. There's a lot of ambiguity in Tea Cake and whether or not he's a good man and deserving of her love. Like, there's a, it it is not a simple, empowerment fable is what mm-hmm. I'm saying. There's mm-hmm. a lot of complexity in the journey of this woman's uh, and how she gains her voice and owns her selfhood.
0: So then by the end, going back to my question that I said I wanted to talk about, you, you, you do think that by the end she has achieved mm-hmm. the agency that we're supposed to hope that she, we've been rooting for her to get the whole time.
2: I do. Yes.
0: Can you give us some examples of how you see that playing out? I don't ask that because I think you're wrong. I just asked that. Sure.
2: Yeah. Can you unpack that as my
0: college professor used to say?
2: Um, yeah. I think that her, um, I think the storm is really significant. Um, holds like a, I think it's a brilliant choice for like a problem in this particular novel um, because the storm is a force without intent Right. It's it has no consciousness and thus no malice and no benevolence to it. And the response that the characters have to this storm, it determines their survival. Right. It's not something that can be fought. It can only be endured. And I think that that is what um, and I think that that then it becomes mm, symbolic of all of the forces in the story. Um, It seems like in this particular novel, what they're saying is something like disease, like TK's disease. He dies of something that has no malice and no benevolence. It's an entirely implacable and impersonal force. So is the storm. And I think what Herson is saying is that that is the human journey, right? We we treat the hardships that we encounter as though they are like a storm, right? Um, And- Then, and that cannot then be necessarily overcome as much as they must be endured and then assimilated into that interiority that we were talking about earlier. So, I think one of the reasons why we don't have as much of a glimpse into the interiority of uh, Janie's feelings is that Janie's part of Janie's empowerment journey is everything, whether external or internal, must be only overcome internally. So she's not going out, she's not an activist. She's not going out, you know, like trying to overcome these forces in her life. Like you don't go out and picket a storm, right? You run away from the storm, or you endure the storm, and I think that's a lot of how her, how Janie is encountering the world with her own voice. Now, again, this is something we can judge her for and say, "Hey, you should be out picketing and be an activist," right? We can respond to that, but part of her empowerment journey is that to Janie, racism, sexism are the same thing. Uh, in to be overcome, to be endured, to be assimilated, to be overcome internally, not externally. And that happiness then is something we choose for ourselves. And I think that one of the ways we see that is in the ambiguity of the men in her life, right? We have TK, who actually, I mean, he does love her. They have this very strong bond. But as we've said, there's all kinds of red flags about that relationship. And in the end, he tries to kill her. And yet she loves him. Right. So we can look at that as like, actually, you've just remained oppressed and enslaved to the male dominated culture. But to Janie, she's gathering in this horizon. Right. And that's the final image of the novel. The novel opens with, an, with the image of going out into a horizon. And then and the novelist tells us that that's a masculine journey. It's men that go out to conquer. It's women that gather in the horizon and take within and interiorize uh, and dream. And the dream then becomes the reality. And I think that's Janie's journey. And I think that's her empowerment.
0: Hmm. I don't it's even know how to
1: respond to, me to that. <laughs> how, how little of this book, I mean, to Heidi's point, how little this book um, deals with the kind of like white culture as a power structure. It just sort of takes it for granted. I mean, um, for me, the court case is the biggest example. Like the, the closest that Herson comes to um, issuing a complaint against that power structure is found in the court case. You know, with these these, like this white community is making a pronouncement on her actions with regards to TK, her, her you know, innocence or guilt. Um, but even in that, Janie doesn't really offer much of a complaint, you know? It's just taken as, I'm just going to echo what you said, Heidi, it's just taken as a fact, like the storm, like illness. And that surprised me. A little bit. Not that I mean, of course. Like I I mean it surprised
2: a, the male activists in the Harlem Renaissance too. They didn't I, like
1: it. I bet. Yeah. They I bet. indicted
2: her for that. You're too accepting. You're not resisting enough, right? You're playing to the white stereotypes mm-hmm. of black culture. Mm-hmm. And what she was seems to be saying is I have a different vision of freedom than you do.
1: And I think in a way you can kind of make the case like the best revenge is not to care. I mean, I I don't want to pretend that Zora Neale Hurston didn't care. I think most certainly she did, but it just seems like maybe this story is just like, I'm not going to be preoccupied with the oppressors. We all know I'm going to write my story and I'm not going to like, and I'm not going to um, write a juxtaposition story that I kind of like find my uh, identity by juxtaposing myself to uh, the white powers. No, I'm just going to find my own identity in a in a different way.
2: Right. The human journey is an internal one. Janie builds and makes her own happiness through her perceptions of and per, per, through her perceptions and her relationships and her acceptance. Like her resistance is in a sense quite passive. She's not an activist, but she's saying, I found love. I enjoyed this man. I didn't try to change him. I loved him. And, and I, I've always done what I had to do, but I've always been on my own journey. Alice Walker said about her, and I really liked this quote, and I think it really captures um, Janie's journey and their eyes were watching God. She says, quote, I think we're better off if we think of Zora Neale Hurston as an artist period, rather than as the artist slash politician that most Mm. Black writers have been required to be, Mm. end quote. This is, I mean, what she seems to be saying is that Janie's journey is a human story. It's not a Black story. And I refuse to be defined by the fact that I'm Black in America. I'm going to enjoy it. I'm going to indict it. I'm going to portray it in all of its complexity because it is the Black characters that turn on her at the end, right? Right. So this porch communal culture is portrayed as both toxic and enriching, mm-hmm. right? And so what what she seems to be saying is, I'm not a politician. I'm telling the story of one woman's journey. And all of the forces, whether they're racism, sexism, disease, storms, whether those are the negative ones and also the positive ones, the love of a man who is three men who are actually quite complex and abusive in their different ways, right? And she chose to love one and reject the others, like right, like this. What what Zorniel Hurston is saying is that Janie's subjective journey and her perceptions and the gathering in of the horizon, rather than going out and trying to build the world, right? To let her own internal world be her true world. The dream is the reality, as she says in the second paragraph, of the whole novel, right? When that is Zora Neale Hurston saying like, this is her voice. This is her empowerment.
1: So one of the things I think is really interesting is early on in the book, I think I read this book as, um, like we've talked about it here, it's like the story of um, her achieving her identity, her voice, her agency. And I I think I kind of semi-consciously juxtaposed that goal, like the goal of achieving one's identity or voice with the idea of becoming integrated with a community. So an example of... Books that seem to really move toward integration. I I think of Wendell Berry's novels as characters who are finding in some way a way to kind of rejoin or reconnect or be integrated with the small farming town in Kentucky that all of his characters are located in. I mean, not universally. I'm not saying that all of his books are the same, but so often a character who's estranged comes back to the community and is welcomed by the community or even eulogized by the community. So the two kind of alternates, I would say, or maybe the work of Wendell Berry is about reintegration. And I think maybe a book like The Stranger by Albert Camus, which regardless of what you think about Camus, it's a really great book. And it's the story of an individual, like setting himself apart you know, this is like part of him. Yeah, I mean, the, the it is what the book says, the title says. Right, it. he's the stranger. He He's like, he finds the kind of world that he is in illegitimate and he pays the price for it, but he like deliberately stands apart. Okay, so those are kind of like, like this kind of a- Maybe we should do some Camus sometime. I would love to do show. some Camus. <clears throat> I wonder what our, I don't know what our listeners would think about it, but it could be fun. Anyway, these are like might these appreciate us doing. <laughs> modes of thinking about how like maybe like redemption happens for a character. And it seems like this book doesn't really fit neatly into either one of them. You know, mm-hmm. it's not Janie, like just coming to stand apart. I mean, so much of the joyful moments in this book are her being like, Integrated, like being welcomed after kind of being an outcast as a trophy wife. Um, she is integrated into like the party that is just wonderful that is happening in the muck. But it's also, that's not the whole story that's being told. There's also this kind of individualizing with her. And so I think I had a hard time at the beginning of the book, like really placing where she was going to go. And I think part of the reason I had a hard, part of the reason I thought this is a story chiefly about identity as a, like as juxtaposed with a community is the gossiping women that are kind of nattering at the beginning of the story who don't like her, who like are telling who she is and they have a terrible opinion of her. Um, That's part of the reason why I thought we were going to get a story that was not her integrating because who would want to integrate with them? Like nobody would want to be like part of that community, you know, but that's not what we, 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 got neither one of those. So what you're saying, Heidi is really helping me kind of make sense of this kind of, it's almost like a middle position between mm. integration and individualization.
0: In the afterward, Henry Louis Gates talks about the way the writers of her generation thought about this book. Um, and of course, he's one of the, in the 80s, he was one of the reasons that this book get, continued to gain more popularity and respect within, uh, certainly within, you know, academic realms. Um, and he talks about how, you know, you had Richard Wright, Ellison, Hurston, uh, you know, there were other black writers of the era. And he says that they were engaged in a battle over ideal fictional modes with which to represent the Negro. And clearly Hurston lost the battle says Henry Louis Gates, although he says she didn't lose the war, the war because because you know people like Alice Walker and Toni Morrison then rediscovered her thirty years later. But what we're seeing that the important to me the most important point of all that is that they're in this era when they are trying to do exactly what Janie is trying to do for herself. They are trying to identify the best modes to express their cultural heritage, like to express who they are and what their heritage is, and to figure out how to take that heritage into the future. So they're debating like. And experimenting with different modes of expressing that heritage and 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 sharing their culture with the wider culture. And so she's kind of offering one foray. Richard Wright's offering one foray with Native Son and, and um, Black, uh, Black Boy. Boy and Ellison with Invisible Man. And, you know, there were others. And, and this is not Hurston's only novel. Um, and so she's kind of they're all trying to figure out how do we carve out this voice which is exactly what we're asking what janie's trying to figure out for herself and her grandmother has one approach to that and as janie's life goes on she kind of rejects her grandmother's way of thinking about things but then ironically at the end ends up sitting on the porch which is, you know, she rejects the idea of sitting on the porch because she says, well, once you get on the porch, what are you going to do? But then at the end of the novel, that's what she's doing. She's sitting on the porch. Um, and so like, what 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 Hurston then says in response to Richard Wright is, I wasn't trying to, I'm trying to, like you, I'm trying to figure out how to tell, to write the black novel. I think that she says, I'm trying to write the black novel, not a novel of sociology. So on the one hand... I think she definitely accomplishes that. And it allows us as readers, you know, we can read the book on its own terms, right? We, it allows us as readers to not worry about, to Heidi's point, the sociological st- studies that we could drum up out of this book, right? It allows us to say, well, how does this book work as a novel? You know, like we can look at it from a formal perspective because that's what they're all trying to do is they're trying to figure out what is the best way formally... Have a to to carve out a voice for ourselves in a world that rejects our own voice, and so this book mirrors that that struggle that all of these black writers and all of the black artists of the Harlem Renaissance, the musicians, the painters, the sculptors that made up one of the most incredible and creative uh, eras of art in like American history, um, and so there the book mirrors that struggle that all those artists were having. Um, and so in that way, I think it's, it's like really consequential, you know, really important um, and, and like helpful to read it that way, to understand it almost as like a mirror of what she, her, Janie is like a mirror. Janie as a person is like a mirror of all these artists of Zora Neale Hurston herself trying to figure out what is the best form of expressing who I am and who we are. I, I think that's pretty compelling. And I think her response to write is fair. I also think that you could make a case that what Ellison and Wright are saying is fair too, if you. But they're looking at the world in different ways, you know. Like they can both be fair. <laughs> I, I don't. I don't. And I don't think that they would like. We're so we live in a world where when you like criticize somebody or ask somebody a question about something, it's like you're doing harm to them. But I think what was happening is you had all these characters who were. I mean, all these writers who were trying to figure out this way of expressing themselves. And so they were kind of going back and forth at each other. And I think they had a lot of respect for each other. And so they weren't arguing about it on Twitter mercifully. <laughs>
1: <laughs> and also the movement is um, it's nascent and it's relatively small. I mean, and, and so you mean
2: the Harlem Renaissance? Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And so it became understood very differently a hundred years yeah. later. We think about it differently mm-hmm. now than it was, in the moment that it was happening. Mm-hmm. Is that what you mean? That's not what I was, I mean, that's true. That is true. I was just going to say, I think at this point, the Harlem Renaissance is a relatively, it's a, um, it's a group of people that know each other and it's relatively small. And so conversations about what is a black, what is like the black novel going to be like? Well, you could have that, community trying to achieve a singular answer instead of multiple answers. Mm -hmm. You could have this kind of book and this kind of book and this kind of book. So to your point, David, I think Richard Wright might say, I think that the African-American novel should be chiefly concerned with political and cultural protest. Um, And Zora Neale Hurston can say, no, I think it's about something different. And there's room enough I mean, especially now there's room enough for both of those answers, but I just wonder if at the time it didn't feel in that community that there was room enough for both answers. Maybe, I don't know.
0: Maybe. One of my favorite literary things to think about and read is like these schools that emerge. So you've got these, these folks during this era who are trying to say, well, what is, what is the American black novel going to be? Like we're living in Jim Crow South. We, carving out this voice for ourselves and this sort of school of literature is difficult you know you've got at the same time at almost the same time you've got like the american expats in paris the fitzgerald hemingway that school and they're like trying to figure out what is their school of novel like how are we going to change american lit you've got like the inklings right at one time they're they're the famous school you've also got like the bright young bright young things bright young things in england the was and and you know, I think Nancy Mitford's part of that. I'm just fascinated by the way those like these schools of people who know each other emerge and they're trying to, what they're all trying to do is figure out how do we share our story and who we are in this particular time? Because they're living a particular experience at a particular time that is fraught in its own particular ways. And so as they're trying to figure out how to express that, they're all kind of doing that in different ways. And sometimes it feels like they're competing with each other. And sometimes it feels like there's like this synchronicity between them. But I just think it like the whole thing is, is, uh, is fascinating to think about and watch how those things emerge. And and you can see how
1: tempers would flare if Richard Wright thinks, man, Zora Neale Hurston, you're living in Jim Crow South and you're not going to really talk about it that much. You're not going to like actually acknowledge like, like, the elephant in the room. And I I think that she would, I I have no idea how she would reply. And I'm sure that she did reply, but I think that she might say, I'm going to venture to say that she might say something like, um, I'm not ignoring the elephant in the room. I totally acknowledge like the shape of things in Jim Crow South. I think the best way to deal with it is to write a story that is not, um, so preoccupied with that reality so as to make it the most powerful character in the book.
2: Right. I mean, she does, you're exactly right. She does respond to those accusations and and makes a very strong claim on what she was trying to do. She wanted, she says outright, I want to portray black culture as full, robust, and complex. And in her words, undiminished, although fraught by the surrounding white culture. Right on. Saying, If you only portray black culture as being oppressed by a white majority, then you are not understanding the richness and the complexity and the community and the goodness of it. I will not. She's saying, I will not allow our people to be defined only by whiteness and oppression. We have so you, an so diminished then- culture. That's what she do you said. think
0: she accomplishes? that? That's then that that's what we have to then respond. That's what she's asking us to think
2: about, right. and she's saying, Here's what she's saying then. What she, and I think this novel is a great, great example of this. To your point, David, that you made earlier, which I thought was brilliant, is that Janie then bears on her shoulders oh, the <laughs> entire uh kind of statement that Hurston is saying about black culture and what Hurston. She's doing here is shifting the field of action from the external to the internal through Janie's journey of finding her voice. That's all.
0: <laughs> and were you, Tim, You were going to say <laughs> the, to the end, two, right? <laughs> right. No, 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 no. And for Heidi, waiting for Tim. Yeah, Macken, that's, that's the show.
1: <laughs> welcome
2: yeah that life and identity and happiness are internal processes not external. They're not defined by oppressors or they're they are defined by our own choices as individual humans in a big, implacable world that's fraught with storms. Hmm.
0: Hmm. okay. Let's talk about i mean we I think there I think you could we could have a long discussion about whether we think she accomplished what she claims to have set out to do. Does she? portray what she's trying to portray effectively. Um, But let's talk about the storm
1: and tea cakes death. Um, Uh, Can I, can I say, I totally came unless you, I totally came around on tea cake by the end. I was like, Oh man, I love tea cake. I love tea cake. And at the end, it's funny how she sets you up at the
0: beginning to think that he's going to be terrible. like the worst of all,
1: right, right. You're like, Oh man, we're in it again. We trusted tea cake and now you took all of our money. But by the end, man, I love him. But the reason we
0: love him is because she loves him. Cause I still think there's a case to be made that he has.
2: Tim, what do you love about him? What, what brought you around?
1: He was with his woman till the end, you know? And I I think he goes, he loses his mind. He gets raped and he loses his mind. You know, um, but I don't think that anybody—I don't think anybody's supposed to get out of this novel that he actually like turned against her. No, he got—he was rabid. Um, and so I think while he was still in his good mind, I think he loved her. I think he was crazy about her. Yeah, he had his foibles. Well,
0: totally. He talks a lot about how you know she, she's beautiful, and he—he's complicated. He's sometimes he shuts her up and sometimes he gives her voice. Sometimes he, you know, hides her away. And sometimes he shows her off some, you know, I mean, I guess that's kind of the point, you you know, you know what I should say? He seems a little bit of a cipher to me,
1: but I, I think I appreciated him more as a character than for his relationship to Janie. Like the, his relationship with Janie was fraught. But as a, as a character well-drawn, I loved him. I loved him. And I do think that his kind of um, loyalty and affection for her came out at the end.
0: And it, it does help that we, you know, in comparison to these other two guys who we don't get as much time with, we're able to see the complexity that's in him. Whereas we don't really get a ton of complexity with... The other two guys, yeah. like so Hurston doesn't spend as much
1: time revealing their inner lives. We and, get a little bit you know, about the, Joe the, Starks, not much at all. Yeah, from little, Logan. yeah. Logan's just, right. I mean, it's increasingly flat. Yeah. 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 Not to be fair. Not the person who edits our podcast. Not that no Logan is very complex. I feel like sometimes Dude. he doesn't listen enough to me, but still. He's really complex. listen.
0: The reality is
1: that in the end, the person who
0: masters and and edits the the episodes is, 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 is the one with the power. He's the one with the power. And
2: he's so constantly it's listening best, to you. We should just understand <laughs> he that. He's like, literally he listening to us literally all the time. Listening. Logan, you're a hero.
0: We yeah. love you. Um, I did lose track of what. do you, were you gonna say something? Because you did unmute yourself, but it may have been to just laugh at. at
2: It was to laugh. I wanted our our audience to know that I was laughing at him in a very very (laughs) respectful kind of way.
1: What did you think of Tea Cake at the end, Heidi? I
2: I liked him, but I think that he's not perfect. And I think that's Mm -hmm. great. And I keep going back to it's like this novel could have been a very flat, boring, uh, you know, identity fable. Right. Perfect Janie overcomes all of the problems in the world and finds the perfect man. And then, you know, tragically and melodramatically has to, you know, kill. Like she, Hurston could have written a much lesser story. um, And it -hmm. would have been probably quite tempting to do so. Right. Um, But she didn't. Like she let it be, she let him be quite complex. Like the fact remains he beat her up. Right. And then we get this like really interesting and I think cool detail in the storm chapter about how they left a motorboat behind and he fell asleep and then he actually survived the storm. But because Tea Cake was in such a hurry to get away, then he ends up dying. Right. He causes his own death like he he goes out and he and but he does it through trying to save Janie because of his great love for her. Right. So there is I I think that. There is quite a lot of complexity and richness of detail in this in narratively in this section that that kind of contributes to the complexity of tea cake. But yeah, I thought he was awesome because and and, and I think the most compelling thing about him is Janie's love for him.
0: Yeah, like I said. Any affection we have for him is because she has affection so again, for him. Again,
2: it's that interior world of Jamie that influences our perception as readers of She's the, the storyteller. World, right. Mm-hmm,
0: mm-hmm. In the end, is she better off without him? No.
2: Does she have rabies at the end? He bites her.
0: I think the doctor is supposed to have... Yeah, I, I took it like the doctor gave her medicine.
2: Maybe so. Did you, have,
0: you, have you guys ever heard the... Um, the um, this American life episode about the girl who had rabies because she got bit by a bat. No, no, so
2: rabies they horrible. figured
0: out, yeah. Well, like the, you can go online and like listen to recordings of people who have had rabies before they die because it scrambles your brain, Ugh. and so you basically shortwire. And so, um, what this girl got bit, she started getting sick, and this doctor theorized a way to save her. So he put her into a coma. Uh like a medically induced coma. And then the 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 infection scrambled her brain, but her brain they were able she, to shut her brain down enough so she, that in a coma, so eventually they were able to like watch the brain activity and so they saw it like going crazy and she's in a coma. And so then it it was basically they were able to get her through that. And then when she woke up, she was fine.
2: Right. Cause a lot, most rabies patients die of thirst because they can't swallow. I went and drank like six glasses of water after I read this section, by the way, (laughs) I'm like, I do not have rabies.
0: Well, the ironic thing is like, there's a flood and also he can't drink. Like,
2: so that, yeah. So I think that whole band, that whole section made me never want to ever get rabies for no sure. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't encourage that. I didn't want to get rabies, but this really reinforced that. So,
0: do I have to say, I mean, they do have like medicine you can give that. So maybe if you she get it quick it. Enough. It's I like a rattlesnake. It's like kept bite. waiting.
2: Like he bit her. And so I'm like, I mean, she she's fine way
0: later. Yeah. When she's telling the yeah, story, she's, she's fine. fine. But, it,
2: but it took him three and a half weeks, right? It was like four weeks until he got sick and she buries him and then goes back home. And so I was like, maybe there's just like, mm, just like rabies waiting. she's fine. She's fine, Heidi. She's, she's fine. Okay. She okay? She's totally fine. Thank you. She's okay. I really needed to okay. that.
0: Speaking of, is she okay? I asked in the end, is she better off without him? Because one of the big questions of the story is like her agency, her voice.
1: Tim I, th- I said think no because real Because I think quick. he kind of, I think he changes. I think he, yeah. I think he grows up a little bit. They,
2: that they I think really one of the, love each other.
0: One of the things the story seems to be asking is like, she has independent agency, independent voice in a way that she never did before. But she doesn't have But she didn't have TK love. She doesn't have the relationship so
2: That's the cost, right? Because there is a line in the book That mirrors the line in All the Pretty Horses in which There's a claim that the gods require blood Right? I think the Loaded gun image is the most brilliant thing In the whole book With the t- When she takes the Two chamber, like she takes The uh, two oh shells oh out yeah. of the first two chambers So he gets two shots at her That was brilliant yeah. Right. So she's not going to shoot him until she knows that he really mean is really trying to shoot her. So she gives him two empty rounds. Uh, mm-hmm. And on the third round, you know, before he fires the third round, she shoots him. And I think those I think that loaded gun is marriage in the book. Right. Because she oh, gets two empty Heidi. shots. Right. She gets two empty shots of failed marriages. And but then the third one almost kills her until she kills it. Wow. I think it I was like reading that and I'm like, this is
1: that, I totally that is like a brilliant
2: that. image of the loaded so, gun. So I think the gods have required, and that's the whole title, right? Their eyes were watching God. It's these the the bystanders to the flood who are doing nothing to save themselves, and here comes the flood, right? And so God has this um. Like religion's not a big thing in the book. I kept waiting for it because of the title, you know, Um, but religion doesn't seem to be any kind of defining force, um, any memorable community force, nothing kind of like gathering around the idea of faith. Mm -hmm. Um, And there's almost this like pagan or. even like an animistic view of God, right? Like the supernatural conflated with the natural, the storm is represents God, right? These implacable forces of nature that have no malevolent or benevolent intent. And that seems to be Mm -hmm. the best that we get when we're talking about God. And yet there's that really strong statement that the, um, that there are, that, that the gods require blood. And so she has to trade in her lover for her voice and her identity. Hmm. Hmm.
0: Well, we need to work our way to the end here. We do have the Q and a episode, so make sure that you send in your questions either to David at goldberrybooks.com or on the thread that Heidi is going to start
1: mm-hmm. uh, over on the Facebook page. <clears throat> it's your job. Okay. Any, let's do final thoughts. I am really glad that we, that this book was part of the close reads season. It's like one of these books that, it's been on my list forever and it's never risen to the top. And I'm glad that we, that like the podcast was the reason it like got to the top and then we read it. And I'm really glad that I read it. And I'm really glad that I read it with you. It's like one of those occasions It's like, Oh man, I got a lot more out of this book because Heidi and David were in my ears. It's so unlike, after the book, of the logo, I, wish, <laughs> I wish that he listened to me. Well, then he wouldn't be in your ear then. It would just be him responding to you being in his ear. That's great. Okay, great. Just juxtapose. Okay, take his side, David. Take Logan's. Oh, side. Oh, I'm always, gonna take you're his always side. taking Logan's side. He can side. make us seem
0: so bad. You never listen. To me. You know what? You're gonna this whole episode. You're gonna sound like one of those like <laughs> the your voice is gonna sound all weird and like one of those. I know. Uh, He's got the mice in the song.
1: <laughs> wouldn't it be funny if the whole show is me talking in a Mighty Mouse voice?
0: One of those. Is it Mighty Mouse? The, what's that song where the like the little mice
1: sing? The Alvin and the Chipmunks. Yeah, uh, you know you my know wife. What? Yeah,
0: my wife can do that so really? well. Really, she does that, and it sounds just like them. She won't do it in public, and it's one of the great tragedies. In she wouldn't the do world it for hire because me? it's hilarious. I don't know. She barely does it for me. Okay. So, um, after the book of the Dun Cow, we're going to be discussing A Gathering of Old Men by Ernest Gaines, which is another novel by a black author that's going to be talking about. The black experience, and it's going to be, you know, the continuation of carving out what the black American novel is. So that's going to come after the book of the Dun cow. But Gaines was a close friend of Wendell Berry. Uh, they studied together. And so it, you, it's interesting that you brought up Berry, Tim, because he's going to be it, kind of a similar vibe to mm-hmm. Berry in some ways. Mm. Um, but also approaching some of the questions that these writers from the Harlem Renaissance mm. had. So that'll be interesting to to touch on in a couple of weeks. Heidi, final thoughts that we'll call that my final thought.
2: Okay. So my final thought is a question and I'm going to post it on my own Q and a thread for you guys to answer, <laughs> because I don't know. Um, I could not figure out why there was never any question of children in this novel there's no church and there's no children and that both of those things were very intriguing to me because in a novel that explores community to completely remove as any kind of factor at all church and children that is quite interesting yeah interesting and it seems a very intentional removal because Mm. those like the passing on of culture and faith culture have always been defining characteristics of mm. all cultures and she's an anthropologist and so it seems intentional and I, I can't figure out why
0: hmm. and it's not like it's not it's not like it's not a yeah. part of and
2: there's no question like it's not Janie yeah. and the men in her life never seem to ask why they why Janie never had kids like to me I'm not I'm not bothered by the fact that she didn't but why is yeah. that not any kind of preoccupation of the novel? Yeah, and yeah. why is there such a marked absence of faith in a book that has God in the title?
0: Hmm. Hmm. Great question. Thanks. So we'll need some people that are listening to answer that um, I
2: wish I had a podcast <laughs> that answer my questions about this novel. So.
0: <laughs> I wish. All right. Well, we have hit our time limit. Let's go ahead and wrap it up um, for, well, let me just say again, David at GoldberryBucks.com, a thread on the Facebook page. And after this is the Book of the Cow schedule being sent out Friday, August 27th. So with that, for Heidi White, for Tim McIntosh, for Logan Green, who doesn't listen to Tim, I'm David Kern. Thanks so much for listening. And until next time, happy reading.